0: And welcome to the Running Wild Press Podcast. I'm your host, Tone Malazzo, and today we're continuing our series on the Running Wild novellas Anthology, Volume 2. But this time we have a triple threat. We have an author who's been in all three volumes, so we're going to cover all of that. I'm here with Krista Miller. She is the author of The Sodom and Gomorrah on a Saturday Night from Volume 1, The Kings of Babylon, Volume 2, and The Queen of Sheba, Volume 3. Hi, Krista.
1: Hi, Tone. How are you?
0: Good. Okay, so first question people are going to ask is, why do you like the Bible so much?
1: Um, It's actually a little bit accidental. Mm -hmm. I uh, started with the first novella Sodom and Gomorrah on Mm -hmm. a Saturday night, which was it it came from a totally off the cuff comment my mother made once uh, we were driving through Hampton Beach, New Hampshire. And uh, she just made this comment about, uh, you know, sort of the, uh, I don't know, iniquity that she felt it engendered. Um, and so that phrase always stuck with me. And uh, so when I started writing the story that was set there, um, I, I thought it was probably the, the perfect eye-catching title for it. Um, and then it, it kind of ran from there uh, when I came up with the ideas for the second um, novella. Uh, I, I was looking for, I specifically looked for another biblical reference for that. Um, I came up with the Kings of Babylon because uh, of the, the history of Babylon. Um, people generally wanted to conquer it and have ownership over it and and uh, and so on. And, and it, it sort of fit the theme of the, the final scene in that novella. Um, and then uh, same sort of loose reference for Queen of Sheba. Um, it, it's a reference to the um, immense amount of influence and power that this one woman had, um, that there's a, a character in that novella who is... Um, who also has those qualities. So, uh, so that is a reference to her.
0: Besides the, the fact that they're all inspired, at least to t- from the Bible, is there anything linking them?
1: No, uh, there really isn't. It's, uh, it's a dystopian near future series of novellas. So uh, it, it's not historical in any regard. The characters are not particularly uh, inclined to, to quote Bible <laughs> passages. So um, it, it really is just the loosest of references.
0: Well, before we get to those stories in depth, what's your story?
1: Uh, My story is I've been writing professionally for about 20 years um, uh, in one capacity or another. Um, I I freelanced for um, about 10 years uh, while I was raising my kids. Uh, I I worked as a trade journalist for, um, for magazines. And then I've uh, written fiction on and off over the years. Um, There will be some times when uh, I'm writing a lot of it and other times when I'm not writing any of it. So um, and I've also done uh, content marketing as well um, for about the last seven years for various companies. So um, so it it really is, uh, you know, writing is just the the thing that I do um, and uh, in in one capacity or another.
0: Well, how do you get into that kind of work?
1: My very first job out of college was on a help desk at the university where I graduated from. And the longer that went on, I did that for three years. um, I decided that I couldn't really see myself doing that for the next 20 years, however. And (laughs) so I um, started thinking, you know, what can I do? What do I enjoy? What am I really good at? Uh, and came up with the, uh, the answer of writing. I mean, it, it um, I had in, 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 college, instead of writing a, or instead of, uh, participating in an internship, I wrote an honors thesis. Um, that was a big clue right there. Uh, and then just from there, uh, brainstormed what else I could do with writing, um, and, and came up with, um, uh, trade journalism actually for law enforcement magazines, um, I had been a law enforcement explorer in high school, and uh, it was sort of what, you know, they, the, the, the advice is write is what you know. And at that time, uh, I, I knew law enforcement pretty well. So um, I did that. My first article was published exactly the month after 9-11. It had nothing whatsoever to do with terrorism. Um, but what happened after that was the uh, Department of Homeland Security was formed. Homeland Security grant money started flowing, and uh, there was all this technology that uh, that editors really needed somebody with um, technical um, technical chops, I guess, to be able to explain in in uh, basic language to, to to people that weren't. Necessarily, technically inclined themselves, (laughs) Um, which I'm. I'm trying to be diplomatic about it. But at at the time um, when I left the uh, the the Explorer post that I was a part of, um, there was I don't think they even had computers in the cruisers yet, um, and that was in the late '90s. So um, you know, with all of this technology that started to to flow after 9/11, my help desk experience was uh, was immeasurable at that point. So um, I, I kind of made my reputation on that. And then uh, I was able to to parlay that in in, um, uh, content marketing.
0: Well, you have come a long way because now I see computers in the police cars all the time with the cops playing Minesweeper.
1: Yes, uh, I I cannot attest to the Minesweeper (laughs) aspect, but certainly um, uh, using mobile devices and body cameras and and predictive analytics. And there's there's really no shortage of Technology that they have now, um, and one of the things that I'm um, I'm interested in working in now that I'm, I'm back out on my own, um, I'm uh, doing less content marketing and a little more journalism these days. Is um, is that intersection between law enforcement and technology, and and um, you know how to kind of make sense of that fire hose of information coming
0: in? So I imagine you you just know a lot of cops at this point, and you when you have an idea for a story, you you do the rounds asking them questions or.
1: Yeah, I, I actually specialize in a very specific niche of digital forensics. Uh, so um, my client is uh, kind of an online magazine called Forensic Focus, and so uh, I, I know I do know a lot of law enforcement forensic practitioners. I also know a lot of people in the private sector, and there's sort of a balance there um, with um, just educating people on on uh, proper forensic science process with digital technology, um, which. Sounds relatively straightforward, but the technology is developing so quickly that it is really not straightforward at all. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of uh, new technology that um, uh, is is making itself more available these days. Um, I don't think that we've even begun to answer questions of how data is stored uh, in different, uh, you know, AI, for example, or or a robotic system. Um, and so, uh, that, that's sort of, um, where I'm at right now is, is, um, trying to find the people that, uh, will work on that.
0: While you're working on this journalism with, uh, cops and technology and all that, were you also working on your fiction?
1: Yes and no. Uh, I, between about 2006 and 2009, I wrote a lot of flash fiction. I, uh, in the, in the crime fiction genre and, um, By 2009, I had started to feel a little constrained by the genre. It's kind of hard to explain. Um, You know, I just I felt like I had said everything I was going to say. Um, I was not I was writing a novel at the time that never went anywhere. It was a really bad novel. Um, like so many first novels are. And, um, so I, I just, I was like, all right, I'm not going to do fiction anymore. I have nothing left to say on the topic. Um, around 2015, I was working in Boston for a company and I was, um, taking the tea. I lived in Boston when I was a kid. Um, and so, um, there was like this juxtaposition of, um, new experiences plus my memories that sort of um, morphed into an urban fantasy that I wrote um, that also didn't go anywhere, although uh, at some point I'd like to get back to it. But, um, but that was when I really started picking up fiction again. So it's been about four years at this point, writing just all different genre um, categories. So I, I mentioned I started out in crime fiction. Um, that definitely came into play in the first novella. Um, but at this point I'm, I'm sort of writing, um, a mixed genre. So this novella series is a dystopian, um, almost fantasy. There are fantasy elements in it. Um, whereas a lot of my other short fiction is, uh, is, uh, um, horror and dark fiction and then I also wrote a children's series completely off topic um total surprise but um or or I should say wrote a children's book that is is turning into a series so um so it's become a a more significant part of my my writing repertoire
0: okay so go ahead and plug the the children's book (laughs) mm-hmm
1: Raccoon Rescue is published in 2017. It's uh, based on my experience volunteering at a local wildlife rescue in South Carolina. Um, I had the chance to observe baby raccoons and get to know them and um, watch them with their moms, um, although that was more often on video um, than at the rescue because by the time they come into the rescue, they're usually either orphaned or sick or something, and and they're being treated and rehabilitated there. Um, But I came to know how... Sweet and smart they are, um, and um, you know just the um, uh, the level of intelligence they have, and how similar they really are to humans in so many ways, um, and how misunderstood they are. Um, and that was really the the thing that drove me to wrote the, the me, drove me to write the first book, uh, Raccoon Rescue, which is about a family of raccoons that meets a family of humans for the first time, and the sort of misconception misconceptions that they have about one another. Hmm.
0: So I I I don't do children's fiction. I do do comic book projects. So and part of the like one of the big thresholds for somebody like me who's still working on their portfolio is you have to sort of build an art team mm-hmm. and pay them ahead of time. Yeah. And uh, is is the same standard go for you? You have to commission an artist and get get the get the art done. Yeah,
1: I was I, I was really lucky actually. My first book I um I had started with a small press in Australia. And that publisher actually found my illustrator um, and worked with him. Um, and so, um, so we, we had that arrangement all set up. Um, I, I do have to pay him this time around uh, myself, uh, which is, is um, awesome because I think he just captures the characters so well. Um, and so I'm happy to be able to pay him. But definitely self-publishing is, is expensive. And so um, I, uh, I started a Patreon uh, to support the rest of the series. So it's the second book that he's working on right now. Um, we just signed our contract and, and uh, you know, got going on that. And um, just whatever future books uh, come out of the series as well. Um, in addition to lesson plans, um, I'm, I'm looking to support my work on developing those. So um, ones that, uh, that adhere to the Common Core curriculum, as well as South Carolina State curriculum standards.
0: Now there's the Patreon Rescue Raccoon Specific.
1: It's not. Um, so the series is called Living Wild Side by Side, and it's specifically uh, designed to to teach kids about the different backyard species that they might see. So it starts with raccoons because I love them. Um, but I have ideas also for other other what are technically called nuisance animals. Um, I don't think that there really is any such thing. I think it's just animals trying to survive in this environment that we've kind of um uh, appropriated for ourselves um so I've, I've had ideas for skunks and for beavers and um maybe some ideas around foxes and coyotes although um those are are not as as firm yet so uh but definitely there I, I would like to to build it up into an entire um you know fairly fairly lo- sizable series
0: it is this sort of subset of your writing, though, right? I mean, it, I, I think about this a lot of time, like people, it's all about building audiences, right? But for somebody like you who are working in two very different genres, it's tempting to try and try and bring some of the people over from one to the other. But is that even possible to bring people from children's book over to your dystopian fiction book stuff? Except occasionally slip in a mention. It's like, oh, by the way, I do this, too.
1: Yeah, I, I would like to think so. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm um, I I I do enjoy reading children's fiction, um, at least in the, the sort of middle grade, young adult categories. Um, picture books, I I enjoy picture books as well. I'm just not. I don't um, I don't classify myself as a children's author. Um, I'm um, so if i meet somebody as a result of the children's books and i get to talking with them and i'm like hey yeah i also write horror fiction <laughs> that <It's> counts <laughs> in my brain as well then um you know if they happen to like that genre then absolutely i hope they will check my work out um the same for uh Horror fiction fans, which, um, you know, honestly, I think um, the horror fiction community and the crime fiction community as well are some of the most empathetic and passionate people there are. Uh, and so I, I think, um, you know, a children's series, if they have kids in their lives or they have teachers in their lives, um, would absolutely fit that uh, that sort of compassionate outlook that a lot of those people have.
0: <laughs> so I'm just picturing you having a booth at a horror convention <laughs> and then... On the side of the table, there's these kids' books, too, which you could probably, like you said, you. Uh, I know the horror community, too. You could probably get away with that. Uh, but I, I, go to a children's I, I, convention, eh, not so much.
1: No, you're right. I, I don't think at a children's convention I would bring any of those stories with me. But, uh, you know, by the same token, my I've, I've sort of been jokingly referring to my second children's book as Baby Raccoon Dystopia, um, <laughs> because, because it's about habitat destruction. And so, you know, when you for an animal, um, you know, whether you're trapping and relocating it or, um, you know, uh, all of the, the trees that they live in have been cut down. Uh, it literally becomes a dystopia because they don't recognize anything. They can't survive in that new environment. Um, you know, their, their usual smells and points of reference and, and things that are, are completely destroyed. And so at that point, it becomes about, well, how do they survive? Um, and so that's, that's what that book is about. Um, so there's definitely, um, you know, a little, a tiny bit of crossover. Um, I do think that, um, Kids can handle tough stuff. Um, I, I think it's important actually to show that because they need to be able to process the tough stuff that they see in life. And um, so um, I'm not—I haven't yet gotten into straight horror fiction for kids, but I know it's out there. I've—I've um, I've read some; it's really good, and um, that may definitely be something that I explore. Um, maybe not with the animal characters, but um, a little further on down the down the line for sure.
0: Well, I mean, if you if you want to end the series. And switch John's at the same time. There you go. Just have <laughs> this nightmare ending to all these. Ho-
1: oh my God. No, no, no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, you're not going to go there? All right. Yeah, I'm-, I- I'm very curious about how Patreon works. So, for listeners who aren't familiar with that, it's essentially a tip jar. You know, um, it's it's a way of sort of, and it's a way of like um, funding ongoing arts projects without having to do the advertising thing. Yeah, Would you say exactly. that's fair? It's-
1: it's a longer term crowdfunding platform. So rather than do like a 30 day or 60 day Indiegogo or Kickstarter, which I did look into, um, those were, were attractive to me, but there are a lot of work and I wasn't sure I would be able to, to do that for an entire month. Um, with patreon, i I worried a little bit about being able to sustain a pace of creating new fiction. Um, I avoided it for a long time because I just didn't think I would be able to to do that.
0: Mm-hmm. Um
1: And then when I realized that I could um, I could position it in terms of the books, and the lesson plans and have it be like, Hey, this is my learning process and my journey on, um, you know, creating this children's book series, then, um, then it became more palatable and, and, um, you know, easier to think about. So, um, so that was why I went with Patreon. So, so it is, um, there's, you can use it as a tip jar a lot of artists do you know um ask people to pledge like a dollar or two a month um i certainly have those options um but for the higher tiers um you know if you've got somebody pledging ten dollars a month then i will send you excerpts and you have the option of offering feedback um you know if you have ideas on new animals or new situations that the animals can find themselves in um you know this is really a tool um not just for for educators, but also for wildlife rehabbers who are doing education themselves in their own communities. Um, I belong to some communities on Facebook that um, are wildlife rehab communities, and so my hope is that um, that they they become engaged with this process as well, um, where um, you know they're kind of feeding the the work and um, they're getting something back in return, which is a way that they can educate their public on on the, you know the animals that they're rehabbing. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, it's nice that you have this educational angle. Yeah. I, I know that you know, I don't do any self-publishing myself, but I, I certainly pay attention to what self-publishers do because it's they they definitely understand the marketing better than most creatives. And yep. having a non-fiction angle like that is because is, there's already people inherently interested in, in that whatever that topic is.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: You just have to find them.
1: Um, yeah, for sure, and and you know, just it's it's not just like um, like oh, they're my audience and they're my readers and and um, you know they're gonna buy my stuff, but it's also they're getting something back. Um, I do, by the way, donate a number a portion of my. Proceeds from sales to Izzy's Pond, which is the wildlife rescue here in South Carolina that I volunteer with, and then um, there are other groups, like I said in the, in the Facebook groups, that also do fundraising that I, I try to give a percentage to. So, um, so that's another aspect of, of um, you know selling the books that uh, I think is important.
0: Do you take a certain percentage of your proceeds, have them converted to shiny quarters, and then just hand them to raccoons? <laughs>
1: um, no, raccoons prefer marshmallows. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Well, there you go. I learned something.
1: They have they have a very discernible sweet tooth. So, um. <laughs> uh,
0: so let's talk a little bit more about because I'm very interested in, in small business enterprises too. So, how does your Patreon break down? How do you build an audience on Patreon? Uh, do, is there outreach you do specifically for the Patreon, etc.?
1: I just launched it. So, okay. um, this is something that I am still very much figuring out. Um, I've been trying to promote it more. Um, and, and part of that, um, by the way, is, um, I, um, the, the ink is dry on the contract with my illustrator, but there was a point where, where we were kind of missing each other, um, you know, ships passing in the night and I wasn't sure that he was going to be available. Um, so I was like, I didn't want to really say anything about the, the Patreon until I could be sure that he was on board and he is. Um, so I am starting to talk about that more. Um, I've been tweeting a little bit about it and sharing it on Facebook and, um, there'll be more of that Instagram. Certainly. I haven't, I I know I need to find other animal oriented, um, either artists or writers on Patreon and, and um, you know, try to support their works as well. That is definitely um, something I need to do. I've just um, it's in the week since I launched my Patreon, I've also been traveling a lot. And so that's, mm. that's um, you know, one thing um, in terms of building an audience that I just um, is going to have to wait until the end of the month when, uh, when I'm not traveling so
0: much. Right. But
1: it's in the it's it's uh, in the uh, in the works.
0: And now going again, still with the same with Patreon. It's very good for creative efforts that can be parsed out in small chunks. Right. So I think probably it, it, as I remember, it first really took launch with web comics because mm-hmm. they, those guys were always struggling with sort of an advertising model anyway. Um, right. Because advertising you know they always want to put flashy ads on the page and as artists they were like they were always like opposed to banner ads right and then there was um um some sort of scandal early on where there was like a, some sort of web comic hosting service that didn't pay anybody ultimately uh, so a lot of shitty business practices there mm-hmm. and this was this was their way of sort of taking control of all that and then they have all kinds of freedom to sort of Share the material early with Patreons is something I see commonly. Like so you get a first look. That's that's what right. you're paying for. Right. Sometimes bonus material. Sometimes behind the scenes thing. Again, as an artist, it's really great. You can just record a, you can draw stump and live stream it to your Patreon fans. Right. So you're you're sitting there chatting with them. Right. So none of that stuff really seems to translate to your other work, which is the novellas, right? I, can you imagine trying to do any of that stuff with a long form? <laughs>
1: Yeah, actually, I, you know, um, I have mixed feelings about that because I uh, I do not like to share too much of rough drafts with people. But yeah,
0: same, same. But
1: by the same token, um, you know, if if I write a scene in a short story or a novella that I really like and it's not you know, it's not a murder your darling sort of situation. It's something that's like, yeah, this is an anchoring, you know, sort of thing that I'm going to probably do with this um, that I'm going to keep for for, uh, you know, the final draft. Um, I can see sharing that. Um, you know, I think, um, I don't know, 1500, 2000 words, uh, is about the size of a standard article. Um, you know, certainly opens a sharing something like that. Um, if I ever decided to do a second Patreon, um, or, you know, just on my blog, you know, um, I think actually, um, when I was writing Kings of Babylon, I did try that. Um, I have a, a tiny, tiny, tiny newsletter list, um, and I password protected that blog and ex- ex- excerpt in a blog post, uh, password protected the blog post and then emailed it to people so that they could log in and read it if they wanted to. And I, I think out of nine of them, I, <laughs> I don't know how many actually did that, but it, it was, it was something I certainly experimented with and, and, um, you know, would be open to again.
0: Uh, so let's talk a little bit about your stories in the anthology. Let's start with volume one. Seems a good place to go. Sure. So, yeah, you know, we've touched a little bit on the title, Sodom and Gomorrah, on a Saturday night. Right. Where did what was the genesis for this idea besides the the title?
1: It started out as a murder mystery. Um, back in the days when I was doing crime fiction, I uh, was sort of intrigued by the idea of a murder happening on Hampton Beach and and um, you know what that might mean for that very small beach tourist community uh, in New Hampshire, um, and yet the longer that I worked on it, um, it just never came together. Um, I would work on it and then it would sit for a few months and then I'd come back to it and I just couldn't really get jazzed for it. Um, in comparison to other work that, um, didn't take me any time at all to write, uh, you know, just kind of flowed. And so, um, I don't know. I, I just sort of, came up with the idea to make it a dystopia. Um, I don't remember precisely where the idea came from. I don't, I I think it was just sort of a loose, like, hey, you know, what if I introduce these elements and did this and, and, um, um, you know, suddenly I had to finish novella. (laughs) So, um, I, I, it, it definitely helped. Uh, that was around the time that I got laid off in 2016. And so that became my anchor, Um, For kind of getting through that experience, which was um, incredibly stressful. Um, I I wrote that novella throughout early mornings during the summer of 2015, um, Mm -hmm. before I submitted it to Running Wild. Um, And then... um, kind of the same with the novella i'm working on right now i got laid off again and <laughs> working on the you know the fourth novella that's i'm um, going to, to end up in a collection with the other three um early next year but um in any case um it's um that was when it really came together that first novella um it's uh, a, a dystopia again um it, it sort of covers the th- themes of um what would happen if human trafficking and other forms of criminal activity were legalized and were made um, sort of legitimate businesses or legitimized businesses and uh, everything else, by the way, also became privatized. And um, um, and by the way, if if empathy were outlawed, so uh, empathy is a skill, <laughs> sort of the, the, the science fiction um, aspect of it, where people can literally sense one another's emotions, um, if that has been outlawed, then you know, then what? So, um, so that was how the story came together and how it flowed. And, and I was able to, uh, to work with it from there. All
0: right. And that was Kings of Babylon.
1: That was, so? um, that's all of them. That's, so that's, um, okay. it, it's, that, the, the Hampton beach story is Sodom and Gomorrah on a Saturday night. Um, Kings of Babylon takes place. Not far from there, sort of, um, sort of the I-95 fish corridor, um, the route one corridor. I think I, I have a scene in there along route one. Um, also between Massachusetts and New Hampshire, and then the other, um, the other two novellas also take place in that general uh, vicinity.
0: And it's interesting that you say you, you get these pounded out when you are laid off. Cause when I lose my job, I can't write at all. Cause I'm constantly thinking I should be making money somehow instead of, instead of writing. Maybe it's our attitudes. Maybe it's because you're a professional writer, you see that act as a way of making money, whereas I see this as it'd be nice if I get lucky sometime and make some money off this, but I still see it as a hobby.
1: Um, and that actually was where I was coming from when I was working on this first novella. Um, I did not expect to make any money off of it. I... I needed the anchor really more than anything. Um, I had this, the, I, I had determined that cause I had um, gone through a period of burnout a few years previously, um, where I basically was doing too much for work and not enough for myself. And so I recognized the risk in being laid off of, Throwing myself a hundred percent into the job hunt, uh, you know, trying to you know different things and and really becoming consumed by that. I didn't want to become consumed by that. I really um, I'm gonna use the word anchor again. It, it i I really needed that project that was all mine um that wasn't for anybody else's eyes yet um, that could um, I guess help me process in a way. I don't I don't know. It, it, it was just it, i haven't really picked apart the, the kind of state that I was in at that time, but that that was the, the gist of it was um, you know, hey, this may never see the light of day, but um, you know, maybe it'll lead to something else that will. Um and of course this one did see the light of day. So um so it, it worked to my benefit in that regard. But um but it, it definitely was that sort of um a um I don't know survival mechanism um during that really stressful period.
0: Now were you setting out to write novellas?
1: Um, it's funny. I, uh, yes and no. I, um, I discovered, so the, the, the problem with that first novel that I, I wrote, you know, during my crime fiction period was that it was terribly overplotted. I outlined the crap out of that thing. And it was wooden as a result. You know, I I, um, you know, had to make the characters follow the plot, which is something that I abhor in (laughs) any kind of fiction. It could be a television show or, you know, a novel. Like you can see it a mile off. And I just didn't, you know, want to have that happen. And so when I wrote The Urban Fantasy in 2015, I didn't go into it with any plotting at all. And I just sort of had fun with it. And I was like, you know what, I just want to do this. Um, You know, I don't want to outline. I just want to, um, you know, kind of enjoy the process. And so that was how I wrote that novella. Um, You know, not worrying about the length. Um, You know, I decided that maybe I wasn't cut out so much for writing novels. Maybe I was a short fiction writer. Um, I, I think I even got advice from another writer to that effect. Um, and so I just kind of ran with it from there. I was like, you know, whatever length the story needs to be is going to be the length it needs to be. Uh, I'm not going to try to, you know, bang a square peg in a round hole. And, and that's sort of where we have ended up. So, um, you know, in, in terms of the the lengths of the different novellas, I think, um, Sodom and Gomorrah was close to 40,000 words, whereas Kings of Babylon was only like 30,000. Um, and I think Queen of Sheba, came in at around the same mark. Now, the, the fourth one that I'm working on now wrote in the wilderness, which, by the way, is another biblical reference. Um, <laughs> well, I expect that by now. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, so uh, so that fourth one is coming in right now. The, the draft is sitting at twenty five thousand words. So that's definitely going to be longer. So, it, again, it's just it's whatever the story needs. And um, I don't stress about it too much.
0: Uh, do you worry at all that you might run out of Bible?
1: no. <laughs> No, but I, you know, I think I'm done with this series after this fourth one. Um, I'll, I'll be focusing a little bit more on crime fic. I mean, um, horror fiction at this point, there are some other short stories that I really want to get to work on, um, that have been sort of patiently waiting in the back of my brain and they're not going to be patient
0: forever. So, <laughs> so you said you're working on the fourth, uh, novella, uh-huh. uh, is there anything else you're working on and, and obviously the ongoing Patreon with the animal stories.
1: Yeah, um, that's pretty much it. I, um, I did, um, I've been revisiting a couple of short stories. Like I'll, I'll see that there's um, a a call for submissions and, um, you know, realize that there's something that would fit that. So like when I see something like that, I'll, I'll bring out one of the short stories and take a break from the novella. But really, um, the novella collection has been, uh, or the series rather has been taking up the bulk of my time, um, this year. So I wrote Queen of Sheba early in the year, Late last year, early this year, um, I finally wrapped it, I think in, like, I don't know, February or March. And then um, I let it sit for a few weeks, but then I got to work on, on Road in the Wilderness, the fourth one. Um, so, um, uh, but, you know, like I said, there's other short stories. There are some that I've had in progress. There are some that need to be finished. And then there are, like, brand new ideas that um, that want to come out as well. So.
0: so where can people find you online? It looks like you're on the Facebook, the Twitter, and the Instagram.
1: I am. I'm on Goodreads. Um, I have my Amazon author page, um, and I have I have two different websites. I have KristaMiller.com, um, which is my business website and sort of where I, I keep my grown up fiction as well, and then uh, LivingWildSideBySide.com is my, uh, my my children's series website.
0: All right. So once again, the author is Krista Miller. The stories are Sodom and Gomorrah on a Saturday Night, which is in Anthology Volume 1, Kings of Babylon, which is in Volume 2, and The Queen of Sheba, which is in Volume 3. I've been your host, Tone Malazzo, author of Picking Up the Ghost, which is available now, and The Faith Machine, out in the fall of 2020. This podcast released under Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International. Share and adapt it all you want, just to attribute to us. Thank you, Krista.
1: Thank you, Tone. Thank all you right. for the time. Right, have a good one. You too. Thanks.